Hey guys, on today's pod I brought on Christopher Klein of the Sixer Sense to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers as we kind of continue our preview throughout the Eastern Conference and the different potential playoff teams. Chris is really one of the best guys covering the 76ers right now. You can read all of his stuff over at Sixer Sense in case you're ever the mood to read something that's not Raptor-centric. Me and Chris, I thought, had a really good conversation, talked about the 76ers, just where they place in the Eastern Conference. I think both of us can kind of agree that the 76ers were the third best team in the East kind of heading into the season and obviously that will change depending on how different players develop a lot of their future kind of hinges on Markel Fultz and what he offers to the table as well as the development of Ben Simmons to go along with Joel Embiid. Overall, I thought the pod is a really good listen. I think me and Chris kind of had a good back and forth, kind of good agreement on where the 76ers stand. And like I said, I think it's really interesting to get the point of view from another fan base and what they see night in, night out, night out. Hey man, how's it going? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming on. Excited to kind of break down the Sixers and, you know, one of the biggest contender to the Raptors, so I thought it was important to have someone on just to break everything down. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, get going. So I guess just kind of off the bat, I think most people I talk to, and perhaps you're different, obviously, in a different basketball community, Most people I talk to, it's kind of the consensus that the 76ers are the third best team in the East behind the Celtics and the Raptors. Uh, To start off, do you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, I I actually released my, you know, Eastern Conference rankings a few days ago on the Sixers since, and I have the Sixers third, I have Toronto first. Assuming Kawhi's healthy, of course, that's going to be a big if, if he's healthy and motivated. But assuming that's the case, I think the Sixers are a pretty solid third right now. Right, yeah. It looks like, I mean, they're certainly ahead of kind of the Indiana Pacers and Milwaukee Bucks of the league, but I think they're just a hair behind the Boston Celtics and Raptors at this time. Yeah, I think that's definitely a a fair assessment of where things are at. I think the Sixers have the potential to maybe take that next step and compete with Boston and Toronto, but we'll probably have to how a few different things play out before you can kind of put them in that discussion. You talk about the potential. What do you think would have to kind of go right for Philadelphia in order for them to jump into that next group? I think one of the biggest things is going to be how Markel Fultz plays out. Every report this summer has been positive that his shot is progressing and he's ready and he's he's ready for a big breakout season. But just the lack of historical precedent for a situation like his makes it kind of hard to predict just how good he'll be. He's obviously talented. He's, a, he's already one of the best young playmakers in the league in terms of his passing skills, but if he can't shoot consistently, it's kind of hard to, for him to have a spot on the team. So just how good he actually is, where his shot's at, and how much he can contribute right away, I think is going to play a really big role in determining the Sixers' ceiling for next season. Right, and especially if you talk about someone who, if he can't shoot, 
especially when you have Ben Simmons on the team who's going to be your primary playmaker facilitator in that driving point guard role. It seems like if Markel Fultz can't shoot, that he provides a lot of kind of duplicate skill sets to what Ben Simmons does, obviously in a much smaller frame. Yeah, I think one of the biggest reasons for the Sixers' struggles against the Celtics in the postseason this past year was they didn't have enough ball handling, especially in the second unit, but just in general, outside of Simmons and B, they don't really have anyone who can consistently create their own shot. I think they were last in the league in the amount of pick and rolls they ran all season. Just having someone who can score off the bounce, score at all three levels, kind of just make plays happen, especially in the half court when your ball movement kind of dies out. Just having one of those go-to scores like Fultz theoretically can be is going to be a big would be a big step forward for them. What do you think are kind of reasonable expectations for Fultz heading into the year? As I said before, it's just so hard to predict where he's at since we really haven't seen him actually shoot the ball this summer. We don't have any inside information on where his shot is actually at. We just have what his trainer is saying, what teammates are saying. And I think talent-wise, he could easily be the Sixers' third best player, or he could just as easily be where he was last year. It's really, there are so many different factors at play. Drew Hanlon, who he's working with, called it the yip, which is a mental block that he would have to get over. So it's just really hard to get a concrete assessment of where, you know, I think he's at or where everyone else thinks he's at. It's just hard to kind of put a concrete, like, stat line or whatever for predictions. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. And you mentioned everybody with positive reporting. It's very rare in a circumstance where you see people kind of where the puff pieces don't come out this type of year, time of year, sorry, where, I mean, we saw how Mello was supposedly reinvigorated in his role in OKC, and that doesn't always pan out as nicely as the summer profiles make it look. But if he is able to get that jump shot, I think you're right. He has the talent to be the third best player on the team. And it's basically like you're getting him as an addition, as a free agent signing almost. Yeah, I agree. If Fultz is back to 100%, he's almost as good as any non-LeBron or Kawhi Leonard addition the Sixers could have helped for this summer. So if he's back to 100%, he, he genuinely fixes a lot of their biggest offensive concerns. And I think if he is back to 100%, then you can say they're really going to contend with the Bostons and the Torontos of the world come playoff time. Yeah, um, another guy you added was Wilson Chandler. What are some expectations you can kind of see from him this season? Yeah, I mean, obviously he's going to be one of the more important bench pieces. I think another issue the Sixers had against Boston in the postseason was just defense in the second unit, especially guys like Bellinelli and Ilyasova or Boston with all their versatile wings and ball handling, handling was kind of able to hunt out switches and beat those guys in isolation. Chandler's one of those guys who can switch around the floor, guard a few different positions, and he's not going to be as easy to break down as a Bellinelli or an Ilyasova. So I think the additional versatility that he has to the second unit, along with his spot-up shooting, is going to be a really nice nice addition. Yeah, you talk about Bellinelli and Ilyasova, kind of the two major pieces that left after last season. They're both kind of one-way players, and it's important to note that Chandler, the guy you guys are adding, like you said, is more versatile kind of two-way option for them. Yeah, definitely, and I think the Sixers might have some trouble replacing Bellinelli's offense, 
both him and Ilya Silva were really valuable in the first round against Miami, and they were a big part of that 16-game win streak to end the season. But I think the additional defensive versatility, especially once the postseason rolls around, is going to be a, a big boost for the Sixers. Losing both those guys, and I already kind of think that Philadelphia, at least from an outsider's perspective, wasn't one of the deepest teams last year. Do you worry about depth with this team at all? Yeah, definitely. I think they're going to need quality minutes out of Zaire Smith right away, which might be asking a lot. He's really raw on the offensive end. I don't know if we can trust the shot yet, but I just think defensively his versatility, in addition to Chandler's, is going to be a really nice addition. I think Smith is probably the best perimeter defender in the 2018 draft, as things currently stand. So in that sense, I think they're better defensively, but they're going to need to find some more shooting. Maybe add someone like a Kyle Korver at the deadline. Like they're going to be, they're going to need to target those kinds of players as the season goes on. Just to make sure they have enough offensive firepower around Simmons and Embiid. Yeah. What What was kind of your overall thoughts on the Zaire Smith trade while we're talking about it? Pardon? Sorry, I didn't hear that. Uh, I said, what was your thoughts on the Zaire Smith trade? Yeah, I think it was a great a great deal for Philly just because they get an unprotected first round pick in 2021 when the Heat the Heat aren't really going up right now and it's kind of hard to see them making a big power move between now and then. So there's a lot of upside with that pick and getting an unprotected and um you know just getting an unprotected first round pick for to move back six spots in the middle of the, middle of the draft is a seems like a steal right now. We'll see how it turns out obviously in a few years, but it, at face value, it's a great deal. And I think Smith is on Bridges' level as a prospect, so I think it's just a great move all around. Yeah, I was I was also a fan of the deal. I thought I liked Bridges a little bit more than Zaire Smith, but when you talk about adding an unprotected first-round pick for a team that has no kind of promises to be good for six spots, I think that's just you have to consider the efficiency of that deal and consider it a win for the Sixers. Yeah, I had Bridges 11th on my big board, and I had Smith's team, so obviously it's a small bump down. But they were both in the same tier. I think Smith, long-term, is going to be the better defender. It's kind of just a matter of how, where his offensive game kind of turns out. I think his ceiling is obviously higher than McHale's, even though McHale obviously would have been maybe a more productive player right away, which is obviously valuable for a team that's trying to compete. But I think long-term, Smith is as good in terms of a prospect as Bridges. And, I, you know, getting another pick for him, it was kind of a no-brainer at that point. Yeah, he's someone that, like you said, he's not quite as good right now. And it's interesting that the team that traded for him is not a contender and the team that traded him away is. So it's interesting that that team value being good right now. But I think that Miami pick also is just kind of another, you know, arrow in your quiver in case... Philadelphia is trying to make a bigger move for a bigger name guy a little bit later here. Yeah, like if someone like, say, a Jimmy Butler or something comes up on the trade deadline and they need assets to put into a deal like that, an unprotected 2021 pick would definitely be an asset they can use or just potentially adding another high draft pick once they're already a competitive team, which they should be. Yeah, I think those you've seen in Boston that those high picks can be helpful to teams who are already capped out is kind of like an influx of talent that you can't otherwise get due to cap uh, restrictions. Yeah, and, and they might get the Kings pick 
next year, which would add another top prospect. So that those kind of moves can just, they might not seem great right away, but long-term, I think making those kinds of investments normally is beneficial to a team. Do you think that Philadelphia makes a move at some point during the season to kind of add some more offense like you talked about? Yeah, I think obviously if Corver comes up again, if that's an option, I think they're going to uh, pursue it. Just adding another shooter who can kind of come in, move off the ball, space the floor for Simmons and Embiid when the second unit comes in is important because right now Wilson Chandler and Zaire Smith are kind of their best wing players, and neither one is a real knockdown shooter, especially Smith. If Fultz, Fultz working out is obviously going to play a big role in how much they need that offense, but you know, you don't want to give T.J. McConnell and Zaire Smith and Amir Johnson heavy minutes and not have other shooters around them in the second unit. So that's going to be something they need, they need to uh, look into. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you have any kind of concerns with Kyle Korver having it? Do you have any concerns taking on players with more long-term cap than, say, the Jared Baylisses and Wilson Chandler of the world, you know, trying to keep the powder dry for next season, off season? Yeah, I think Corver's unique in that he doesn't have his contract isn't fully guaranteed next year, so I think they can cut his cap hit down to like three and a half million if they need to. And obviously at seven million his value, especially with the market going up next year, seven point five million, which is what I think his contract is at, is a great value for what Corver brings. And either way I think they're gonna be able to clear max cap space with or without Corver. So I think especially with the added flexibility of him having that non-guaranteed opt-out kind of thing, that adding Corver would be a fine move. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point on Corver in gen. I was just more speaking in general to adding players with significant cap holds for the future, but I guess it is true you can always move on from them later next offseason. Do you think that, obviously the team wants to win now and that's a priority, but do you think realistically that this Philadelphia team, if you had to put kind of their peak spot where they want to contend is more next season when they do have a chance to go after this free agent market one more time? Yeah, obviously it depends on where Kawhi is at and how the top of the East kind of shakes out. But I I would think if the Sixers are kind of able to add pieces summer when they have cap space again, and there's, there's more on the market, that 2020 is going to be a better year for them to compete in 2019, but I do think they're gonna they're gonna be good enough to challenge the Celtics and the Raptors in a series next season, especially if Embiid and Simmons kind of just improve, which is expected in their third and second years respectively. So I think they're gonna be better next year, and they're gonna have more defense in the second unit, which is important. If Fultz is healthy, obviously that helps, but I do think next summer is gonna be a big one for them. Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say, and. Obviously, things change as the season goes on. Certain players over and underperform, and you can't have a full shakeout before the season starts. Um, if I asked you prior to this season, what do you think the Philadelphia's 76ers' biggest strength is, what would you say? I, I would say it would be their starting five. Because, you know, they're, I think the most efficient five-man group in the league last year was the six-year starting five. Like, that lineup, especially towards the end when they went on that win streak and after the All-Star break, just ran through teams. It was their second unit, especially in the playoffs. They kind of gave them some trouble. So getting that five-man unit back, potentially adding a healthy Fultz if he gets better, is going to be huge for them. So I think I would, that's kind of a, I don't know if it's, you know, 
Uh, yeah, I would just go with the starting five. Okay, fair enough. And if I kind of flipped the coin on its head and said their biggest weakness? Um, you know, I think it's going to be... It, it really depends on where Fultz is at. If he can add that half-court ball handler, playmaker, pick-and-roll guy, that solves one of their biggest weaknesses. If he's not healthy, I think having that half-court playmaking, other guys who can kind of take the pressure off with Simmons and Embiid and create shots on their own is going to be... That was a big hole last season, and it's going to be a big hole this season. If Fultz can't provide that, if he can provide it, it's going to be getting as much shooting around them as possible, especially in the second unit. So adding someone at the deadline or going for, you know, kind of those low-money free agents at the buyout deadline is going to be big for them. Do you think Philadelphia is done kind of adding players heading into camp, or do you think that there's going to be another kind of minimum-level signing that they might I, I think... At this point, I don't feel like Bayless is going to be on the roster at this point. I think they're probably going to look into buying him out if they can't get a trade done. So that might open up another roster spot. They just signed Norvell Pell, who was with the Summer League team. I don't know if he's someone you want to give the 15th roster spot to. But if they do end up moving on from Bayless, that would open up. They do have the room exception as well from when Nemanja Bielica backed out of his deal. So they have the money to add another free agent if Bayless goes somewhere else. Uh, how big of a hit do you think the Bielitsa thing was? Because I saw that, and that's obviously a rough situation for any team to have happened to him. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously his shooting would have been nice, but they did add Mike Mascala in a trade, so they have some more shooting in the front court with him. And obviously he's a defensive liability that they won't have to deal with now. They can have Chandler play the four spot gives that year, maybe Landry Shamit some more minutes on the wing. So I think in the long run, it's not really a, a huge loss. Um, who's your guys' backup center heading into the season? Do you guys plan to play Amir Johnson pretty much at all those minutes there? Because obviously Embiid with his health history, the, his minutes are still going to be somewhat limited. Yeah, I think Embiid, especially since this is his first healthy offseason in the league, Having all all summer to work on his game, work on his conditioning, I think he's going to play more minutes next season than he ever has before. And I think Mike Mascala is probably going to take a lot of those minutes at the five, I think, especially towards the end of last season with Ilya Silva when he started getting some minutes at the center spot. We kind of saw the value of having as much shooting as possible around Ben Simmons or Markel Fultz with the second unit. So I really I don't think Johnson's going to get too many minutes. I think the bulk of those center minutes are going to be focused on Embiid and Muscala. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. I would have pegged Muscala as more of a power forward, but I guess when you have players with so much size like you know Simmons at point and Chandler at potentially the three in different positions, when you have so much size on the court, you can afford to play a little bit smaller at the five position. Yeah, you know Simmons, Covington, Chandler. All those guys can guard multiple positions. All those guys can slide down to at least the four spot defensively. So they have a lot of versatility in that respect when they, Brett Brown likes to stagger rotations. So it's never going to be just the second unit or just the starters. It's going to be some mix of both. So the way he runs things, I think they'll have enough versatility to uh, keep Muscala at the five for the most part behind him being. What are your overall thoughts on Mike, or on Brett Brown, sorry? Um, I, I think he's, really kind of underrated at this point after the Celtics series. I think he got a lot of undeserved criticism. He obviously made some mistakes and some moves that at least short term maybe he should have, you know, 
played McConnell over Simmons in certain spots, but when Simmons are struggling. But I think I do think he's one of the better coaches in the conference, if not the league. And just the culture he's built in Philadelphia is really underrated at this point. Those guys love playing for him. You can see it in the interviews and just on and off the court. They really he's built one of the most impressive locker room cultures in the league, and I think he deserves a ton of credit for that, given how much he's gone through with all the losing and just what went on in the front office this summer with Colangelo. So all the stuff he's gone through to keep that culture intact and make guys really want to play for him, I, I really think he deserves a ton of credit for that. Uh, yeah, I guess I want to apologize for taking so long to get to Brian Colangelo's burners. Um, what, what was kind of your first reaction when you saw that story come out? And kind of how amazed were you that something like that happened? Yeah, I mean, when someone first sent me the link, I thought it was like an Onion article. I, didn't, <laughs> you know, I thought it was a joke. Like, I didn't, it took me a few minutes to realize that it was an actual issue. But, yeah, it was just, I don't think we really had something like that ever happen before. And it was just, you know, no one re- here really likes Colangelo in the first place. So that obviously it's just, it was such a weird few weeks, and just having that distraction gone and kind of moving on, getting a fresh start as the team, team kind of moves into their uh, title window here in the next few years is, I think, in the end, it's going to be a positive. Is that kind of, you said, a kind of dislike for him among the fan base? Is that just from the way that he was brought in, the moves that he's made? or Obviously, for those who don't know, he was kind of brought in to undermine Sam Hinkie from the league. Is that kind of where the kind of dislike stems from, or do you think it's more just based on the moves that he's made? Yeah, I don't think he made any terrible moves. There were some, like the Bayless signing was obviously questionable then and now. I don't, but I don't think he made any grave mistakes. He brought Redick in on a one-year deal, which was a nice signing. He got Elias Silva and Bellinelli at the deadline, which were helpful for the Sixers' playoff runs, and he's maintained flexibility both this past summer and going into next summer. So I don't think he made any terrible deals, but I think a lot of that disdain was just from how he was brought on. I don't think, you know, they kind of forced Kinky out with Jerry Colangelo and then didn't go through much of an interview process before hiring his son, which just kind of seemed messed up at the time. And so, yeah, I would think most of the disdain with Colangelo came from how he was brought on and just, thought process behind bringing him on yeah nepotism isn't i guess a great way for to get people to like you very often um what what steps has philadelphia taken are there any kind of lead candidates for the job now that it's kind of past the season the off season the main part of the off season and kind of into the later parts where now you can kind of focus on the hiring yeah uh, there really hasn't been much in terms of reports about the GM spot, another uh, week or two ago, there was that report about Daryl Morey turning them down. But other than that, there haven't been any big candidates or anything reported. You know, it's kind of been quiet on that front. I think the ownership just kind of wanted to get through the draft and free agency with Brown in charge before making a change of that magnitude. We think one interesting kind of development is that they've made a few changes to their scouting department lately, which is normally something you would do with a GM in charge. You know, you wouldn't do that right before hiring a GM. Right. 
So maybe they're looking at internal candidates. I know the ownership wants to keep a lot of the guys who are currently in the front office around. So maybe they're looking at promoting someone internally. But in terms of reports about them adding someone new, there really hasn't been much on that front. That's kind of weird, is it not, that they haven't looked at anyone? I mean, it's been a while now. I think that story came out during the middle of the playoffs, maybe the finals. It's been a while. Do you Mm -hmm. think... Why do you think the reason they are taking kind of so long on this is? I mean, I think part of it is probably just how poorly things turned out with Colangelo and how quickly they made that decision. And then they're just waiting it out, taking their time, evaluating all their decisions or all the possibilities is part of that. And I think just not making a a giant change of that magnitude right before the draft or right because I think Colangelo resigned like within a week before the draft. You know, you know, just getting through the draft and free agency with the guys in charge, letting Brown kind of handle that for this summer makes sense. And then kind of just focus the energy in terms of adding a new GM towards this upcoming season. Well, with Brett Brown, too, I think it's important to note, I can't believe that he made the trade he did with Bridges. Not in that I didn't think it was a smart trade. I did think it was a really smart trade. But that's not typically a trade you see a coach make. You know, that's more of a GM long hat and credit to him for having the foresight to not be focused on the current roster when I think that's what you see a lot of times from those coach-GM combos. Yeah, I think Brown made a lot of really smart kind of long-term decisions. He didn't tie up money in a, a piece, you know, that's not going to, you know, he kind of kept the flexibility for next summer. I think the trade, he made a lot of really smart longest views in the room kind of moves and I, I think that's just the credit to his foresight and just I, I really think he deserves a lot of credit for how well he handled obviously a difficult situation with Colangelo stepping down like a week before the draft and just I, I really do think he deserves a lot of credit. Um, focusing us kind of back on the current team and the season at hand if it comes down to the 76ers and the Raptors in the seven game series either in the Eastern Conference Finals or before that, what do you think are kind of, what What would you be watching for? Um, again, it obviously depends on where Fultz is at and all that stuff that we mentioned earlier. But um, I think the biggest thing would just be how the Sixers decide to defend Kawhi, how they utilize Embiid. You know, the Raptors have a lot of really intriguing defensive options this year. They're going to be able to go small. They're going to have a lot of really versatile guys that they they can throw different looks at Simmons, but they don't really have someone who can handle and be consistently. So I just think how those matchups work out would be really interesting to watch. I'm, the Raptors are one of those teams that I'm really excited to watch this year because there's so much potential if Kawhi is where he was at in San Antonio before the injury. It's just going to be really interesting to see how they kind of pan out. Right. You're talking, I mean, with that matchup between the two teams, two of the best defensive teams in the NBA when you're talking, you know, Philadelphia obviously has second place Joel Embiid or second place in defensive player they have Joel Embiid, Simmons and you talk about size they have I mean, they're giant across the board, while Toronto has a whole bevy of wings that they can throw at you defensively that can all kind of do different things. Yeah, I think obviously I think they're probably both are gonna to be towards the top of the league defensively next year. The Raptors probably have more versatility, especially in the second unit. 
especially with guys like Ananobi, he's probably going to be coming off the bench next year now that Danny Green and Kawhi have been added. But, yeah, it's going to be a real defensive battle there. And I think, again, how they can handle Embiid and how the Sixers kind of manufacture points in the half court with or without Fultz, you know, almost regardless of where he's at, just how they kind of overcome the flaws that killed them in this past postseason. It's all going to be really interesting to watch. Speaking of this past postseason, do you have any kind of concerns on Ben Simmons and how his game translates to the postseason when teams are able to kind of get a full scouting report on him and game plan for what he provides? Yeah, I think I think he's probably going to go back to the drawing board. I think if he improves his finishing, if he can continue to up his aggressiveness as a scorer, just putting his head down, getting to the rim, I think he's going to improve next season, and I do think adding another ball handler like a Fultz or playing T.J. McConnell more, depending on where Fultz kind of pans out this year, is going to help because you saw how well the Sixers did after they put McConnell into the starting lineup in Game 4. Having another player to kind of take pressure off Simmons, allow him to work off the ball, where he can kind of leverage his athleticism as a cutter, as a post-up threat, is having more dribble penetration, another guy who can create off the bounce and kind of force defenses to turn their attention away from Simmons is going to be a really big key in unlocking his upside in the postseason. Yeah, I, I think it's important to know, obviously, the jumper's important, and everyone's talked about that so much, but if you have another playmaker to kind of help get him involved, then it's not quite as daunting as one person dribbling the ball up out the court and facing five defenders all looking at him. Yeah, I don't want to make it out as the Fultz is like the end-all, be-all for this year, but his development is going to be really important to setting their ceiling, at least for this season. If they add another all-star, you know, next offseason in the summer, that obviously changes things. But for this upcoming season, it's a lot to put on someone who struggled as much as he did last year. But talent-wise, Fultz is where he has the potential to be, he's going to really help the Sixers solve some of their biggest issues on the offensive end. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. As much as, like you said, you don't want to make it all about Fultz and put all that pressure on a 20-year-old, I think that in so many ways he kind of is the critical point for the 76ers, at least for next season before they're able to make a major addition. I mean, obviously as long as they don't make another major addition at the trade deadline or anything like that. Yeah, it, he really it's really an interesting case just because we've really never seen anything like what happened to Fultz. You know, the number one pick, guy who got James Harden comparisons, just forgetting how to shoot entirely, the whole shoulder issue, scapular muscle imbalance, all that. It's, just, it's really going to be interesting to see where his game is at after a summer in which he's basically been hidden in the gym with Drew Hamlin. We haven't really been able to see where his jumper's at. We haven't actually seen physically much of Fultz playing basketball at all. So it's going to be really, really an interesting development once the season starts. If I said besides Fultz, what player is kind of most important to this team's progress as a team next year, who would you say? Um, I would probably say... Covington, just because of how valuable his defense is. Obviously, he was first team all defense last year. You know, I think the Sixers were better with Covington on it. Covington's on-off was better than Embiid's last year in terms of defensive impact, which is pretty 
incredible when you think about how good Embiid is and how impactful he is as a rim protector. So just if Covington's able to consistently contribute offensively, which is obviously an issue in the playoffs, he becomes a really big part of what they do. So he needs to kind of work on his finishing, his ability to put the ball on the floor and attack closeouts consistently. That's something he's really struggled with in the past. So hopefully this offseason he's really worked on his ball handling, his finishing ability, because that would that would also help some of the Sixers' bigger issues offensively, just having someone who can shoot as well as he can but also attack off the dribble, get to the rim, work as a cutter. All of those things are things he's going to need to improve. It's kind of funny. It's Ben Simmons's struggles in the postseason and how much they were talked about. It kind of took some, at least nationally, probably not at the team level, but nationally it took off a yeah. lot of the attention of Covington, who really did struggle in the postseason as well. Yeah, I think locally Covington has gotten a lot of really unfair criticism. You know, people saying he shouldn't start or folks should replace Covington in the starting lineup, which I think is kind of foolish. I think he's probably, if you boil that, if Fultz is where he's at and you kind of have to determine who to take out, I think you easily would take out Riddick or Dario before you take out Covington. You know, he had one of the best defensive seasons in the league, and I think people are really underrating how valuable his versatility is on that end, plus the spot of shooting just because of one bad playoff series. Yeah, another guy you brought up there, Dario Saric, is I, I think one of my favorite players to watch in the league. What do you think he provides to this team that's kind of unique? You know, Dario's situation is really interesting because I don't think the Sixers, as much as maybe another team, are really able to maximize his production because he, coming out of, um, you know, Croatia over with him, um, you know, coming out of overseas, one of his um, best traits was his playmaking ability, his passing, and it's something the Sixers can't really utilize because the ball is always in Simmons or in B's hands, so he's kind of been relegated to more of a spot-up shooting post-up role. And really, I think that would be one kind of underrated benefit of Fultz being healthy and back to 100% would be sliding Fultz into the starting rotation and allow Dario to spend more time in the second unit when Embiid sits and when Simmons sits and kind of unlocking more of his playmaking potential that we haven't been able to see these past few seasons. That's a good point. I think he, when you watch Dario, you notice the playmaking a lot more when Simmons isn't on the court, at least I do. He has a lot of grab-and-go potential where he grabs a rebound and kind of runs a fast break as a six foot ten, you know, initiator of the fast break. That's really something that's valued, and at times you kind of see him get stuck in the corner for Philadelphia because he is a solid shooter from beyond the arc. Yeah, I do think his potential isn't, and it's not, it's not Brett Brown's fault for not maximizing him or anything. He's just in a spot where they can't use every part of his skill set as well as he might be able to use it with another team. But he is such a crafty player because he's really not a great athlete at all. You see that on the defensive end, but he plays angles, his ball handling. He's really a smart, crafty player, and whether he's starting or on the bench, he's going to be a really important part of the Sixers' success next year. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. I think he's, like you said, I don't think it's Brett Brown's fault. He's more kind of a square peg in a round hole, but... He's good enough that he overcomes that and is still a productive player regardless, which I think is a testament to him. Yeah, and he improved his three-point percentage drastically last season. He wasn't a great, just, you know, a few ticks below average from deep his rookie year. He came back last year and almost shot 40% from deep. So I think that's a testament to how hard he works 
in the off season. And he's just he's been able to overcome his lack of clear fit by kind of you know adapting and adding to his game so that he can contribute next to Simmons and Embiid. Um, last player I kind of want to talk to you about is JJ Redick. Redick came back on a one-year deal. Was kind of the afterthought of the offseason, which is totally understandable when you're pursuing bigger fish like Paul George and LeBron James. What what kind of does Redick bring to the table, and what does he offer that other players don't? Besides his shooting, obviously. Obviously, yeah, I think obviously his gravity as a shooter is important, but he also sets just his movement in general, being being able to occupy his defender. You know, he makes a lot of really smart cuts. He just finds ways to get open and kind of um, gives him and someone to get the ball to. And he also sets a lot of really smart screens, which gets underrated a lot. But a lot of Brett Brown's sets revolve around Reddick either setting a screen or getting involved in some sort of action that kind of opens up a driving lane for Simmons or opens up a post-stop opportunity for Embiid. He's just one of the focal points of Brett Brown's offense, and I think that really gets underrated far too often. Chris, I think that's pretty much everything we have. I guess before we get you out of here, how do you think the 76ers season ends? Um, I, I think they'll probably, I think third seed is a fair kind of place to peg them again, and I think I think they'll be in the conversation with Boston and Toronto, but it probably ends either with an Eastern Conference Finals loss or an Eastern Conference Semifinals loss, depending on how the bracket shapes up. So I think that's kind of those are fair expectations to set. Fair enough. Nice talking to you, Chris. All right. Thanks for having me on, man.